Hello, hello. Welcome back to Modern Ancestral Mamas. I am Christine from Nourish the Littles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Corey, from For Nutrients' Sake. Hi, everyone. All right, so this is part four in um, our mini-series on specific meals. Uh, We have covered breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and this one is on desserts, which I feel like is most anticipated. (laughs) Um, And then our next one will be on snacks. Yeah, I think this is a hot topic. So for those that are new to listening, we start every episode with a question that is related to the topic of the show. And since today we are discussing desserts, we decided to ask about what our family's favorite desserts are. So Corey, what is your family's favorite dessert? So I think that most of the people in my family would say something different. Um, key lime pie seems to be a winner most times. Yum. (laughs) I love anything sour. Yeah, I do too. Like lemons, flavors, key lime flavors. Um, I saw a grapefruit flavored, it was like a burnt grapefruit upside down cake. I don't know. It looked so good. (laughs) I was trying to figure out if I could make it into a sourdough cake and for my birthday or something. We'll see if I have the, I don't know, gumption to try it out. (laughs) All right. How about your family? I think we're similar to yours in that everyone would probably say something different. Um, But all three kids really love bone marrow custard. Um, I, I don't know why it's not that hard to make and it's super easy. And they're just like, they, go nuts over it. Um, but my husband is an ice cream lover. So in the summertime, I try to make homemade ice cream for him because the rest of the year he's just by eating store-bought ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) There are some brands that are not terrible. Oh no, he buys the bad ones. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, actually I should say he's not discriminatory. He'll eat any ice cream. (laughs) There was this place in Maryland that was five minutes from our house and it was connected to a dairy. Um, but it was a totally conventional dairy. It wasn't like a, you know, high end dairy or anything, but they made the best ice cream. So good. Um, they actually had a grapefruit flavored, um, sorbet. So it wasn't ice cream, but it was sorbet and it was just knock you out good. Yum. (laughs) Alrighty. So on that note, we have a quote to share from Sally Fallon Morell's book, Nourishing Traditions. I'm sure uh, most people listening or some people listening will at least have that on their shelves. Um, So the quote goes like this. This is funny just because we just talked about ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. 
Avoiding sugar and keeping it away from your children is one of the most difficult things that parents are called upon to do in modern life. It is a challenge that requires discipline, planning, creative alertive, no, alternatives, sorry, Sally, and cunning strategy. I like how Sally adds in their cunning strategy. <laughs> Boy, is she right. <laughs> um, all right. So in our conversations about what we're going to cover on this specific episode, uh, I think we have both agreed that um, the two most egregious ingredients in desserts are sugars and um, food dyes, specifically the uh, processed food dyes. Um, and then we also agreed that um, artificial sweeteners are really terrible, but we will touch on that at some other time. We're not going to talk about that now because otherwise we'll be here for four hours. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's start with artificial colorings. Um, but we wanted to ask the question, what do food dyes do to the brain and the body? So the most prevalent ones are red dye number 40, blue number 40, yellow number five, yellow number six, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Okay. Um, so they're made from petroleum, which helps them keep their color. And um, there's a lot of research that's been done on this. I know that um, my husband has um, ADD and even before we were doing the WAPF style eating, we were looking into how to help him naturally be able to focus better and handle his ADD. And every single thing that you come across on the internet says to avoid food dyes. Um, yeah. I mean, every single conventional everything. Um, so there's research that has shown that these co artificial colorings can cause, uh, neurobehavioral, nope, Christine, how do I say this word? Neurobehavioral. Got it. She said it. Affects in children, um, hyperactivity. They can contribute to ADHD, um, and they've been linked to cancer. So... There's a bomb. Oh, yeah. I especially <laughs> like the uh, made from petroleum. That one's mm -hmm. probably my favorite. Ugh. Here's some like, no, thank you, kids. Yeah, I don't want any of that in my body or my kids' bodies. Yeah, and how could that be considered good? Or, or even not good, just fine. Yeah. I mean, I imagine probably what happened is because this is what happened to a lot of things post-World War II was there was just a lot of excess chemicals that needed to be used. And so industries started trying to find 
ways to use up these chemicals and food and medicines was one way that all of these excess chemicals were used. Mm. All right. So a lot of times um, these dyes are banned in other countries like Japan, um, a lot of European countries, maybe the entire EU, um, don't allow these in their foods. And you can, if you follow people like, um, the food babe on Instagram, she will put up, you know, um, side-by-side comparisons of ingredients lists of things that are made in or sold in Europe and then things that are sold in the United States. And it's glaringly obvious how much crap is in our food. (laughs) I know. I mean, I think we might've talked about this maybe in the prequel episode. So episode zero, but this was what fired me up. This is what got me so upset that these same companies would make the American version of the food with the crappiest ingredients and the European version or the Japanese version would have cleaner ingredients. Like, come on, are you kidding me? Right. Well, and a lot of times the argument is that the um, amount of it is what makes it toxic, right? Um, Yeah. And the problem is, is that, yes, like if you only have... I don't know, a quarter teaspoon or whatever. It's probably not even that much in a, in a Coke, but say you have a Coke and it's got, you know, red dye number 40 and blue dye number 40, and you've only got a little bit in it. Okay, fine. Your body can process that out, right? Your body is made to detox and get rid of toxins and things. But if you have that, the Coke, and then you have, um, Craft macaroni and cheese, which has these dyes in it. And then you have ketchup. And then you have pickles. Pickles, right. That has yellow dye in it. All of these things are building up in your system. And it's no longer just this small amount in the Coke that you drink. Yeah. Actually, I'm not going to lie. I don't think Coke has an artificial food dye, but I know what you were going with. Um, no, it's okay. Pretend we were talking about Gatorade. (laughs) Okay. Gatorade. Are you sure they don't have any, maybe they just have caramel coloring. They have caramel color, but they don't have a food dye in them. Is caramel coloring not a food dye? I don't think so. That is a great question. Yeah. It's just carbonated water, sugar, caramel color, phosphoric acid, caffeine, and natural flavors. Of course, natural flavors is a whole nother story too. <laughs> All right. Well, I, we know I was saying Gatorade. Yeah, we know what you meant. Or high C or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another like brightly colored. Soda. Mountain Dew. Oh, yeah. Probably Mountain Dew has it. That is disgusting. That doesn't even taste good. Corey, where are these dyes found? Um, (laughs) 
I don't know. Where are they found, Christine? You mean like no one... in the foods? Yeah. <laughs> no one heard her outline turning. No nope. one heard the page turning. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, so large food processing companies will use natural food dyes, which is what we were just talking about, like vegetable-based um, or uh, like root-based, like you can make yellow with turmeric, that kind of thing. Um, in packaged foods that are overseas. And they will use the cheap artificial dyes in the U.S. Um, and in the majority of these foods that we're finding them in are things like um, cupcakes, cakes, popsicles, yogurts. Yeah, I mean, yogurts, that's crazy, right? Um, cookies, sprinkles, sports drinks, um, anything that is brightly and artificially colored is almost guaranteed to have these weird dyes in them. I know. So like, this is so hard and we're going to discuss this further on in the episode, but anytime you go to a birthday party and you see a beautiful rainbow cake or you see a Spider-Man cake or you see a princess cake, that cake has artificial food dyes in it. It is loaded with artificial food dyes. So we will just Yeah, and if you've ever made to do if you've ever made those things, like I used to bake a lot. I mean I still do bake a lot, but I used to bake things like that with artificial food dyes. And if you've ever done that, you know you need a lot of color, a lot of dye to achieve that color in that cake. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. If you want the super bright, like red or blue or whatever. Yeah, you're right. And the, and the, the natural food dyes are just not as vibrantly colored. Like the contrast mm -hmm. is pretty stark. Um, yeah. So for kids who are used to those artificial colors, it's going to look pretty weird to switch over to a natural color. Yeah. Yeah. And doing that can sometimes make the flavor weird. You know, like if you're dyeing something yellow and you're using turmeric um, yeah. <laughs> or beet powder, yeah. you know, you could end up with the flavors of those things. Yeah. Yeah. There are natural food dye companies. I think there's one called um, India Tree. Yeah, I have some of their stuff. Yeah, they have natural food dyes. I don't think that they taste strongly. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't think that I've noticed that. Also, before we move on, there's companies that make sprinkles with natural yes. food dyes as well. Mm -hmm. Um we, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember the name of the company, but we'll add that in the show notes so that pe if people are interested. And so it is possible to find alternatives. And I think one of the things that we just have to decide, each individual family or each individual person has to decide what is their threshold and, you know, what are their boundaries? 
maybe for some people it's not food dyes and it's, I don't know, artificial sweeteners or it's um, vegetable oils, for example. Uh, And maybe for others, it is artificial food dyes. And you just put your foot down and you say, we're just not going to consume these. End of story. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to start. And then if you ever feel like you want to add something else in, then you add something else in. I will say starting with food dyes might be hard just because they're in so many things. Yeah. And it it just, it really makes me sad that in these ingredients that are, I mean, gasoline, hello. (laughs) Why are they in so much, so many kid foods? Why? Think about what we're doing to our kids. Well, and think about if we are, we're training our kids' palates, but we're also training their visual palate, right? We're also making them associate these brightly colored things with um, parties or fun or celebrations, you know? And on the one hand, that could work, right? Because we're wired to um, gravitate towards those pretty things. Like um, fruit is really bright and sweet, but it's not the same sort of brightness as a Spider-Man cake. (laughs) That's true. That apple is not quite <laughs> as deeply red as that Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, should we move on to sugar? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So sugar is a big controversial topic. And I was actually kind of intrigued and I wanted to look to see if I could find a little bit of background and history on sugar just for fun. And because I was curious, okay, when is the first time that we saw refined white sugar come into the picture of like the world, humanity? (laughs) And uh, apparently evidence of the white sugar that we know of today, so refined white sugar, was first found in in the Indias in 100 AD. So a long time ago. Yeah. So it's been around for a long time. And initially, people would just chew on the sugar canes for their sweetness, which if anyone has ever done that before, it's super satisfying. Yeah, um, but it's not it, at all like I mean, it's not sugar. No, no, right. it's not the same thing at all. And then in India, they learned how to refine it. And from what I was reading, it's actually a pretty complex process and it's difficult. And if it's not done immediately, then the sugar cane itself goes bad. It rots within one to two days. And it's also backbreaking work. Um, One of the accounts that I read about it was saying that um, working sugar cane fields uh, was worse than working cotton fields. And like the average lifespan of individuals the individuals who were working sugarcane fields would only last about seven years and then they would just like die on the fields. Oh my gosh. I know it's really intense. So is this like a human trafficking situation? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh great. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read about it. Yeah. (laughs) So 
Then fast forward to 1000 AD and the Europeans learned about sugar in the Middle East and they brought it to the Western Hemisphere. And so this was basically, um, they found out that in the Middle East and Jerusalem and uh, in the Indias, these people were eating refined sugar. And when they brought it to the Western Hemisphere, similar to what we've learned about in the textbooks, it was a hot commodity, very reserved only for, you know, the upper classes and that kind of thing. Then in the 1400s, the Spanish colonized the Canary Islands and they put indigenous slaves to work at sugar mills. And this is the beginning of slavery and sugar. And to this day, it continues. It has not stopped. Um, So basically, sugar is closely tied with slavery throughout the entirety of its history. Christopher Columbus brought sugarcane stocks to the Americas in the 1500s and thus began America's history with sugar. And then from there, it obviously, you know, uh, gets processed uh, in the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, there's that's a longer story for another day. But I thought this was an interesting fact. Moving to modern times here in the U.S., the sugar industry receives a whopping four billion dollars in annual subsidies. So, yep, the sugar industry gets a lot of money from the government to keep going. Um, Because they don't make enough money on their own. (laughs) I didn't read into the finances, to be (laughs) honest, but (laughs) didn't look into the finances. But I thought that that was really interesting. And I did not add, we won't spend an entire episode on this, but I'm going to add it in the show notes. There is a New York Times article on the history of sugar, and it specifically talks about the slavery associated with it. And in Louisiana, um, apparently is where a lot of it happened. And there's a museum now that you can go visit, which now I'm really intrigued and I want to go see. Um, So that's a little bit about the history of sugar. It's been around for a long time. And even before 100 AD, the first sweeteners that were ever used was honey. Of course. Um, And honeybees, actually, I learned this too. And I kind of knew about this from Tara from Slow Down Farmstead. She talks about how honeybees are not native to the Americas. And they're not. They're European and um, like Middle East animals, animals, insects. (laughs) Um, They're not native. They were brought over to the Americas. And so in the Americas, what we used for sweeteners was actually maple syrup. So sap from trees. But in the other parts of the world, they had honeybees. And so they used honey before refined sugar was invented basically or created. So I don't know about you, but, or I don't know about Texas, but where I grew up in Maryland, um, we still make maple syrup there. And you can go visit, um, you know, maple syrup farms and go watch them tap trees and then watch the whole process. It is a very cool thing. I think most elementary schools go on a field trip to do that. Yeah. it's When we lived in Chicago, we did that once. And it's it's really interesting. What's crazy is the amount of tree sap that you need for like one gallon of maple syrup. Yeah, because it boils down. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. 
But anyway, that's a little bit of the history. And we did want to talk, we we're going to briefly talk about what sugar does to the brain and the body. And really, this is just an overview because there is, you can go down a deep rabbit hole of what it does. But essentially, it's been linked to diabetes, obesity, cancer. Um, it causes inflammation in the body and metabolic dysfunction, creates high blood pressure and increased risk for heart attacks. Um, I actually learned about this in my NTA um, training, but it was like one of the facts that they made us memorize. The average American consumes 150 pounds of sugar per year. And this is actually reported by the USDA. You can find this on the USDA website. Um, that's an absurd amount of sugar. Obviously, not everyone does that. But for every person that does not consume 150 pounds of sugar, there are people that are consuming more than 150 pounds of sugar. So it's just I mean, that's like mind-blowing an to me. Human, an adult human. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so for perspective, during the early 1800s, the average intake was four to six pounds of sugar per year. So that is a massive increase. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. been to one of those frontier museums or something where they have um, cones of sugar? You ever seen those? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. So like in a cube? early. I've seen a cube of sugar. Okay. So like in early um, American life, right? The way you bought sugar was in this cone shape and it was hard and you, it was like really hard and you had to scrape it off to get the sugar to make whatever you're making. So it was not easy to do. Um, and it was crazy expensive. Yeah. So to use sugar would have been a very special thing, not at all like it is now. I love that you're bringing that up because there was, so I'm reading this book called Chewing the Fat um, and it's an Italian history of, it's a history of the Italian foodways from fascism to, it says Dolce Vita. And there's a few women in there that it, it basically narrates these women's stories of what they, what it was like growing up. But there's a few women in there that make the point that it was having something sweet was an extremely rare occasion to be able to bake something. You had to have cream, eggs, and sugar all at the same time, which almost never happened. It happened maybe once a year or maybe once in a blue moon. Um, because these things were just not easy to come by. There was just, there was no consumption of sweets. And if there were consumption of sweets back then it was local fruits that would grow seasonally. So usually only in the summertime. Um, so I thought that was really interesting that we've gone almost 180 from like having it. And, and even if you think back also to Laura Ingalls Wilder, remember how she talks about in at Christmas time, they get an orange and it's like incredible for them to get an orange for Christmas. And, and that's such a sweet treat for them. Yeah. So it's, it's just a really vast change to what it is now. I mean, I think even back to my childhood in the eighties and nineties, right? Like we, 
I mean, we weren't having like Debbie's snacks or whatever, but we made a cake for a birthday. We had ice cream maybe every couple of weeks. Like, I remember very clearly going out to ice cream with my family because it didn't happen very often. And yeah, it was a special thing. It wasn't, obviously wasn't as few and far between as that, but it was not something that happened every day. You know, it wasn't like in my lunchbox at school, which I was homeschooled. So, you know, um, I didn't have like this little, um, what is that tub of pudding called? My husband always talks about he would get home from school and he would get this little tub of pudding out of the pantry. I think I know what you're talking about. They're, um, oh my gosh. You just like peel back the lid. Yeah. Yeah. You like pull the lid off. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember what it's called. He kept telling me that he would come home from school and get this thing out and he would call it by the name. He called it snack something, snack mate, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, cool. And then at some point I realized it was pudding and I was like, you hate pudding every day? I think our husbands lived similar similar lives. My husband didn't eat a pudding every day, but he drank like four to five Cokes a day growing up. He was like super into Cokes. But anyway, we digress. Um, (laughs) So we're talking all about like sugar and even when we're growing up and how it's in all of these foods and the crazy thing is now sugar is hidden in so many foods and foods that are not even desserts. Right. Foods so that we eat the same on a regular the, basis. Right. It's the same thing with the amount equals the poison. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so you might think, oh, but I'm not eating a cake every day or I'm not eating cookies every day. Yeah, you might not be, but... Here's the list. If you're eating barbecue sauces, breads, canned fruits, cookies, crackers, cereal and yogurt, granola, meats, sugar is in meat and processed meats, ketchup, frozen dinners, salad dressings, peanut butter and nut butters, pickles, soups, vegetables, marinades. I mean, sugar is in everything. If we're not actually looking at the ingredient labels, we just, we don't know. And to make matters even worse, Many times sugar sugar has many different names. I want to say it has over like 50 different names for it. So just for example, I'm just going to list like five of them, okay? Sugar can be dextrose, corn syrup, brown rice syrup, fructose, glucose, marley bolt, agave syrup. I mean, these are just a few of the 50 different names that sugar hides under in these packaged foods. So... Turn the package over, (laughs) read the ingredient labels. Right. But there's also that trick that um, manufacturers do with the labeling where they split up the sugar names. So like, you know how food labels work is that the first ingredient listed is the most, is the- In the largest quantity. Thank you. Um, So if they split up, the different kinds of sugars that they use, 
then they can disperse it in and amongst the other ingredients and it doesn't take up the biggest spot. Yeah. yeah. And then the other bit is that different sugars, and this is even true with like maple syrup and honey and cane sugar, they all hit differently on your palate. And so if you can hit multiple parts of your palate and light up the different sensors in your brain in multiple ways all at the same time, it makes these foods hyper palatable, making you want more, making you eat more, et cetera, et cetera. Wait, we totally forgot to mention that sugar is in baby formula. Oh, boy. And I, I just remembered this just now. It's important to say this because this is how they hook you for life. Once the sugar is in the baby formula, which don't get me wrong, they're, you know, breast milk has lactose in it. So that's a form of sugar. Yeah. And it is necessary. Yeah, they do. But most conventional formulas have high fructose corn syrup in it, um, which is completely different than the lactose in mother's breast milk. Um, yeah, that, that is basically priming baby's palate at a young age for that flavor profile. And that's, yeah, exactly. That's how they hook you for life. So that actually moves on to Corey. So we talked about adults. Why don't you tell us how, how many grams of sugar kids consume every day? Yeah. Okay. So unfortunately, the numbers for kids are worse. Kids consume approximately 81 grams of sugar per day. So they ingest about 30 gallons of added sugar just from beverages alone. So this is like juice boxes, Gatorade, flavored drinks, sodas, etc. Yeah. Yeah, that's so one of the things that we I talk about in my online course with Sloan is like the the number one thing we need to get rid of is juice boxes. Juices are just not necessary. Um, so even if you are new on this journey, um, one really easy step to take is to just say, we're not going to drink juice anymore, or we're not going to drink Gatorade anymore, or, you know, whatever it is in your home that whatever is an easy, actionable step that you can take. Um, And if you're interested in learning more about the science behind how the body breaks down sugar, there is an incredible YouTube video called Sugar, the Bitter Truth by Dr. Robert Lustig. And we're going to link it in the show notes. And basically, he breaks it down um, to explain how the body manages it. And he argues that fructose, too much of it, and fiber, not enough of it, appear to be the cornerstones of the obesity epidemic through their effects on insulin. And super interesting. But so that's all about the demons of sugar. 
of So we kind of want to shift a little bit. Yeah, it's been a little bit heavy and <laughs> negative. So let's shift gears. And Corey, why don't we talk about how we manage this in our own homes? Right. Okay. So I know that I have said before on, um, I think our shows, other places, that if we go to a birthday party and, you know, the option is an electric blue cupcake from Giant, I'll let my kids eat it. <laughs> um, and I, I throw this caveat out too, because I do have a kid that has a gluten sensitivity. Um, she does not eat it, obviously. Um, but I bring something for her. Oh, I just bought my mic. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> I always bring her a gluten-free um, alternative. And it's generally a regular cupcake. Um, Trader Joe's has these little mini cupcakes and I buy them and just stick them in the freezer. And the reason I started doing this is because, well, A, I never want her to feel left out. Um, and then B, she feels weird if she's the one kid that doesn't have a quote normal dessert. So like if it looks too homemade, then she feels weird. But also, can we just bring back making homemade cakes for birthday parties? My mom used to and always make I birthday know. cakes. Yeah, right? Amen to that. Side note. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we do sometimes buy ice cream. We go out for ice cream. Um, I will honestly say that I bought myself a tub of um, Ben and Jerry's the other week. <laughs> <laughs> She's keeping it real. I 100% guys, I do not mess around here. <laughs> My husband was like, I'm going to share that on your Instagram. And I was like, go ahead. I have nothing to hide. <laughs> I love that he's trying to rat you out. <laughs> but in general, we're not eating a lot of sweets. We do this is a problem for me, right? Because I actually love baking. So sometimes I get frustrated because like they'll have gone to church and had a donut in church. And I'm like, dang it. I really wanted to make pie for dessert after after Sunday dinner. And now I feel like I can't because you just had a donut at church. But I have gotten to the point where I'm like, I'm not going to let that steal my joy because I really enjoy baking. So if I want to make a pie, I'm going to make it. I wish I enjoyed baking. <laughs> it's so miserable for me. And the outcomes rarely turn out. <laughs> <laughs> but oh well. You do um, other things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, baking is just not my forte. Um, How do you guys I would handle say, it? Yeah, so, okay, when it comes to birthday parties, we, so what I do is, first of all, I always take them to a birthday party, like, fully fed, so they're full, 
Um, and then I will give them permission to have one thing from the birthday party. Uh, so a typical birthday party will have a, um, a juice box, pizza, and cake. Okay, so those are three foods which I personally feel uncomfortable with my kids eating. So I let them pick. You can either have a juice box, you can either have the pizza, or you can have a slice of the cake. And it's every time it surprises me. Sometimes they'll pick the pizza. Um, sometimes they almost never pick the juice box. <laughs> uh, sometimes they'll pick the cake, but I feel better knowing that it's just one. And then for, and then on top of that, we, I will bring my own food and I usually say, you know, oh, we just have, uh, food sensitivities. And nowadays I think there's so many people with food issues that most people don't even bat an eye. Um, when, oh, and then we also kind of pick and choose. So if there's a lot of birthday parties, then I will let my child choose like which one he wants to go to. That hasn't happened too often. Um, usually there's, I want to say we went to maybe three birthday parties in a year. It's been three, three birthday parties that were conventional. Um, wow. We have, yeah, it w- really was not that many because a lot of these kids will celebrate it in the school. And actually, I'm super blessed. The kids' school has a no-sugar policy, period. And the first year that we were there, each family was allowed to bring a treat for a birthday. And that was really, I was going crazy with that. And then the director said, no, no one's allowed to bring sweets at all. We're cutting that out, um, which is great because, I mean, I, we've, we've, I think we've touched on this before, but if you think about it, there's, I don't know, 20 kids in a class. That's like a birthday a week. Yeah. Um, it's absurd. And that's on top of all of the holidays that come throughout the year and the family birthdays. I mean, I, I'm sorry when the, this is, I think Corey and I have different Corey. This is great. Cause Corey and I have different views on this, but like when I think about it, I'm like, Oh my gosh, there's sugar at every single, every single time I turn around they're being offered sugar. Um, and it is a really big struggle for me. I, uh, it really bothers me because I know how detrimental it can be. And, and actually Corey, we both really wanted to talk about not creating these complexes around demonizing certain foods. And this is a hard one for me personally. This is a food that I demonize, um, both, outwardly to my family <laughs> and, you know, inwardly internally, I, I just like, I know how bad it is for you and I know how much we're consuming of it. And so it drives me nuts. Corey, I don't know. What do you want to say about that? I mean, I think you're right. I do. I think you're right. Um, before COVID, we had a birthday party pretty much every weekend. And sometimes it would be more than one birthday party a weekend. Um, that's a lot. Uh, I think that's a really hard, we're in a really hard place 
time period, I don't know, um, where everywhere we turn, there's an opportunity to eat something that is actually really not good for us and potentially actually harmful. Um, you know, it's not just empty calories. And I think that finding the balance in that is really hard. I think finding the balance for ourselves, not making ourselves um, crazy about it and not then imprinting that craziness onto our children. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's I think it's something that you just have to find inner peace about. I don't know. Like you have to do what you think is best for your kids and then maybe be willing to be flexible and say, you know what? I was wrong either way on that, you know, like it could be that it's wrong to let them eat the electric blue frosting cupcakes, or it could be that it's wrong to say, you know, we're at this birthday party, but you can have this apple I brought you. Um, and I will say there is a point um, when my two oldest were, were little, they don't remember this, but they were probably like four and two where we went to a birthday party and I was trying to do this elimination diet with them. And I brought um, banana ice cream for them. Banana ice cream? No, it's nice cream. That's what it's called. Oh, what, like if you what look is it that? Up, it's frozen oh. bananas. It's like blended up. Oh, okay. Okay. So it makes like a soft serve ice cream. Okay. And I was doing this really strict elimination diet with them mm-hmm. to try and figure out what was triggering my one daughter. And being at this birthday party, nobody cared that my kids weren't eating these things. That's totally true. Um, Yeah. I felt a little socially weird. The kids didn't because they were too young to care at that point. Um, But they definitely would now. So I think there's also some degree at which we have to start trusting our kids and trusting their own intuition. And I can tell you that my kids do recognize when they've eaten something that doesn't make them feel good. Like they'll come from a party and go, I don't feel good. I'm not, I shouldn't have eaten all of that food that I ate at the birthday party. So. I mean, I think that that's really important to I think it's important to let those things happen. You're right. So that they can feel for themselves what it's like when they cross the line with their body. Yeah. So like all things in life, I don't, I, I don't think that there is a black and white answer to this. It's very nuanced and it's dependent on every single individual family unit And whether they want to, you know, they set the boundaries that work for them. And if that means balance, then you find some form of balance and that's great. But I also don't think it's possible to, sometimes I don't like the word balance. Like I, I, I don't, I'm not sure 
if it's also possible to find balance in certain things. Um, we're human. We do the best that we can. And yeah, I don't know. But we wanted to end the episode on a positive note, which is, is it possible for desserts to be nutrient dense? And yes, it is. And that's how, that's what we wanted to end on. We wanted to talk about how can we make desserts nutrient dense and what that looks like. Yes. This is probably the best part of this episode. So if you guys got through all of that before, now you're at the good stuff. <laughs> Pun intended. Yes. You're at the sweet oh, stuff. That was such a good mom joke. <laughs> all right. So um, we've already touched on honey and maple syrup. Are there any other really traditional sweeteners other than fruit? Molasses. Oh, molasses. I love molasses. Yeah. It's a f- strong flavor for sure. And it's filled with minerals. So you know what? When I was a kid, um, my grandmother used to make um, lard biscuits and then we'd take, or cornbread, and we would take molasses and cold butter and you kind of smash the butter into the molasses and it gets kind of like marbled into the molasses and they call it tangle britches. I don't know why they call it that, but it is, I'm like makes my mouth water thinking about it. It's so good. So you, you put this on the biscuit? Yeah, or cornbread. Oh, wow. That is so interesting. It's that really delicious. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so these were used um, sparingly, traditionally. And even if you're making um, desserts now, you can almost, with every recipe, except maybe ones from nourishing traditions or something like that, you can almost always half the amount of sweetener in it and not really ruin the recipe. Yeah, I definitely do that. I actually, I mean, I even half it in nourishing traditions too. But yeah, well, because I'm just, you know, how I feel about it already. (laughs) There's actually a cookbook. I heard um, an interview with with the author on Wellness Mama years ago, and I'm pretty sure it's just called Half the Sugar, something like that. But she's got a ton of recipes where she's just cut the sugar Mm -hmm. in, you know, classic recipes. And then she has a bunch where she doesn't have, or she has only fruit sweetened Mm -hmm. uh, recipes too. Um, Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so one of our top tips is to, like Corey said, cut the sugar in half, depending on the recipe. Um, make desserts at home whenever you can. There, There's something about, we were just talking about it before we started recording this episode. Um, so two things. Store-bought desserts are just, they don't taste as good as homemade, number one. And number two, you can control the ingredients in a homemade dessert 
and a homemade dessert is guaranteed going to have less sugar in it than a store-bought 100% of the time. Um, So already you are helping to lower your sugar intake just by choosing to make it at home. And something else too that was got that was brought up in our episode with Dr. Bill Schindler and his wife Christina is that when you go through the trouble of making it at home, you get to see exactly that, the whole process and how much work it is. And so you decide, well, you know, maybe I don't feel like making chocolate chip cookies at, you know, eight o'clock at night. Um, and, and then you don't end up eating them or, you know, you go through the whole process and, and, and you see just what entails making an authentic cookie or an authentic dessert. Um, and so it gives you more insight into the process, the ingredients. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, Oh, uh, use natural sweeteners as much as possible. So we talked about honey, maple syrup, um, molasses, rapadura, which is unprocessed cane sugar, right? Um, coconut sugar, which is basically what if uh, if we're going to bake in my family, I most of the time, like 99% of the time, use coconut sugar. Um, and then... Date syrup. Date, yeah, date syrup. You're right. I was like, I thought there was one more. Date syrup. Um, and then consuming nature's candy. Fruit in season is a dessert. I do want to also add that when we were talking about the um, human trafficking aspect, I did look up a fair trade um, sugar brand, um, and it's called Wholesome. It has a heart. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's usually that's what aw- I buy anyway. That's I just awesome. Didn't know that they were also fair trade, which just makes me feel better. Yeah. I, when I was looking up chocolate during Easter, I did not know that a lot of chocolate is not fair trade and there's a lot yeah. of slavery Coffee involved too. in chocolate. Yeah. And so then I was like, oh, yikes. Okay. So make a point to only purchase from the companies that are not enslaving individuals to make their chocolate. Yep. Okay. But yeah, go ahead, Corey. Tell me what are your favorite nutrient dense desserts to make at home? Okay. I think we already touched on them, but definitely ice cream. Right. Guys. Ice cream is so nutrient dense. It's raw cream, raw egg yolks, either maple syrup or honey, however much you want, um, fruit, uh, vanilla. You, you can make, there's so many different variations and other things that you can add to it. I, I think ice cream is just a really great option. When I make ice uh, cream, a lot of yeah. times I'll just let my kids have it for breakfast the next morning. I've seen you do that. Yes. <laughs> Actually, we did that 
I think last year we were at a lake house and we brought the ice cream maker and we had homemade ice cream and then there was a bunch left over and it was an Airbnb and we had to leave. And so we were like, Hey guys, you get to eat ice cream for breakfast. And they were just like floored. Like they could not believe ever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See, Um, I can be a fun mom. (laughs) Yeah. You're totally an awesome fun mom. (laughs) I love that. Okay. Um, when I had, which baby was it? I don't know. One of the babies. Um, my mom had made me, um, uh, cheesecake for my birthday. And she made a recipe from Trad Kut School and it had gelatin in it and cream cheese and maple syrup and, I don't know. That's probably generally it. And I think I ate that for every meal for, I don't know, a day or two (laughs) after she made it for me. And so I was like, this is the most nourishing thing that I can get out of my fridge and eat with one hand while I'm breastfeeding, you know, without having to do anything else. That sounds delicious. <laughs> All right. So other things on our list. Um, coconut macaroons. Go ahead. Were you going to say where the recipe is? No. Oh. I, well, so if you don't have the Nourishing Traditions Kids Spiral Bound book, it's just a small cookbook and it's spiral bound. This, it has the ice cream recipe in there. It has the coconut macaroons in there. I think it has like butter cookies in there. Um, I actually, that is a book that I gift to grandmas because everything in there is approved and grandmas can feel like they're like making something with their grandkids because they love doing that kind of thing. Um, And it's nutrient dense desserts. That's a great idea. Um, okay. Cobblers are really easy and you don't even have to add sugar to that. You can just yeah. make, you know, throw berries in a pan, um, use like sprouted oats or, or einkorn or something and butter on the top, maybe a little sugar in that crumbly mixture and then bake it, top it with raw cream or ice cream I mean, that's like heaven. Um, same thing with pies. I use sourdough pie crust, and I know I've said this a million times. I make pie crusts once a year, and I just make a butt ton and freeze it. So then anytime I want to make pie, pull one out, and I'm good. Um, panna cotta is... Yeah. So the, do you remember at the conference they served yep. a panna cotta? It was so good and it's ridiculously easy to make. Is it? Yeah. It's a joke how easy it is to make. That was one of the most delicious things I'd ever eaten. <laughs> yeah. It's basically just cream and gelatin. And then I can't remember if it has an egg yolk in it or egg yolks in it, but I think it's just cream and gelatin. And then you can add like a berry coulis to the top to brighten it up. Um, or you could add in like 
le- uh, lemon zest or something like that. Yeah. To, you, you can flavor it, but panna cotta was so easy and really delicious. Um, pudding. Even though mm. I was just ratting on my husband for eating those little <laughs> tubs of pudding. This is not the same thing. Um, yeah. Rice pudding, actually. Um, mm. Trad Cook School, again, has a instant pot rice pudding recipe that reminds me of this little Greek restaurant that my family used to go to all the time where they're, I don't know. I loved that rice pudding when I was a kid. So good. You just put a little like nutmeg on top of it and it's awesome. Um, fruit, specifically fruit with raw cream. Mm -hmm. Um, my dad went on this Atkins kick at one point and he used to make what we would call fluff and he just whipped up whipping cream and then he would put um generally they were like frozen berries I think maybe they were smashed up frozen frozen berries and he would put it into the whipped cream in the mixer and just kind of mix it really quickly until it all kind of came together. And that is really delicious. And my kids will put um, just raw cream on frozen fruit and sometimes just smash it in the bowl. And that makes mm-hmm. an ice cream basically too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And then when it comes to cakes, donuts, um, cupcakes those types of things you can make those sourdough um farmhouse on boone has a lot of really good recipes for those and cookies are the one thing i haven't figured out i feel like there's got to be a way to make a really good sourdough chocolate chip cookie but i haven't figured it out yet i saw that modern and um, Modern Stone Age Kitchen made a sourdough chocolate chip cookie recipe a couple weeks ago. Really? And I asked Dr. Bill if he was going to post a recipe. He said that they're thinking about it. Like, okay, (laughs) please post it. Chocolate chip cookies are my personal. I absolutely, that's like, I love. (laughs) Um, I, we forgot to add two other things in here, which would be jellos. Oh yeah which is just gelatin and a fruit or gelatin and yeah. Gelatin and fruit, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Like you could puree a juice or a fruit maybe to make a juice or yeah. Yeah. Gelatin and juice, I guess. Um, And then I mentioned it at the beginning, but I'm going to mention it again because this one is the one that I feel so good about feeding my kids and it's the bone marrow custard. And you literally take bone marrow and mix it with cream and egg yolks and bake it. And, and you're, it's one way to serve your kids bone marrow. Um, I can't recommend that one enough. Have you ever made Russian custard? No. What's that? I've never made it, but I've seen it and I've, pretty sure that the only ingredients are egg yolks and honey. Hmm. I don't know. Somebody tell us if it's good or not. 
Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, the other thing I just thought of is flan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's basically custard. Yeah. So I imagine there's every culture has, because I think flan is the same thing as, oh my gosh, there's another version of it from another culture. I can't remember what it's called. Never mind. Well, I mean, it would make sense that they would, that most cultures would have some sort of custardy sort of dessert. Yeah. Egg yolk cream something. Yeah. Definitely. All right. I would love to hear from people and know what your favorite desserts are and how you make them work in your family and Yeah. Why don't, yeah. Why don't you guys share either you can DM us, um, on our IG, the podcast has its own IG, which is modern ancestral mamas, or you can individually DM Corey or myself, or you can leave a review, um, on iTunes. If that's where you listen, we would love to hear from you guys on this subject. All right, so before we sign off, Christine has a bone marrow custard dessert recipe on her website, which is apparently super easy to make. As if we didn't talk about bone marrow custard enough. Again, let's just plug it one more time. (laughs) Um, All right, and then uh, I am going to read a review from iTunes. And announce that we have hit 11,000 downloads. Woohoo! Oh my gosh, Corey. I thought she was going to say 10K because we hit 10K last week and we were so excited about that. But now we're at 11,000. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, it's super exciting. <laughs> All right. So this um, review is on iTunes. Um, and it is from somebody named, um, oh, hey, it's Amanda, which is so cute. (laughs) Oh, hey, it's Amanda. (laughs) All right. It says, um, or the title of it is the podcast I wish I had when, and then it gives me like an ellipsis and I'm not sure what it says after the when, maybe like when I was starting this, I don't know. Anyway, here's what it says. Corey and Christine are so generous to bring this podcast filled with their combined wealth of knowledge and experience. I believe it will provide encouragement to any mama, no matter where you are in your food journey. All of their topics and advice are given in such a non-judgment way that will leave you feeling encouraged that just taking one step today toward whole traditionally prepared foods will leave an impact on your family. Thank you so much for this podcast. I always look forward to the next one to come out. Oh, thank oh, you. Hey, it's Amanda. Yes. <laughs> I got a little like goosebumpy. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Guys, we really like it when people leave reviews. It just makes us so happy. <laughs> yeah. 
But on that note, thank you for listening. And we encourage you to share our podcast episodes with your family and friends and subscribe and hit the like button. (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Modern Ancestral Mamas. Check out the show notes for the resources. You can find Christine on Instagram at NourishTheLittles and online at NourishTheLittles.com. You can find Corey on Instagram at ForNutrientSake and online at ForNutrientSake.com. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Ancestral Mamas. The information contained in this show is for informational purposes only. It should not be intended as medical advice and should not replace your relationship with your healthcare practitioner.